As we come to this um, passage, we are going to endeavor to work our way all the way up to verse 23. And it requires that we, again, kind of revisit some of what we studied last week in uh, verses 7 and 8 on through 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. I draw your attention to verse three things, verse seven, verse nine, and verse 10. You'll notice in verse seven, the word practice. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Verse nine, whoever has been born of God does not sin. And it goes on in there to say, for he cannot sin because He'd been born of God. And then in verse 10 again, the word practice appears. It says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And the reason I draw our attention to those phrases again this Sunday, as I did last Sunday, is because the grammar of the original language is extremely important to understand John's heart. As John brings a contrast to his reading audience uh, between the children of God and the children of the devil, he brings these things uh, forward so that each and every child of God can truly understand their differences. The word practice in the original language, as I stated last week, and important to our study means to habitually repeat. The phrase in verse 9 that says, whoever has been born of God does not sin is in that same grammatical context. It's speaking of a, a habitual repetition. Whoever is born of God does not habitually repeat and enter into sin and the same grammatical context is over the phrase, and he cannot sin. Taking it on down to verse 10, that says, whoever does not practice righteousness, whoever does not habitually repeat the act of seeking to be righteous before God, and only available is that through faith, in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross of Calvary, believing that God had one only begotten son, that he sent his son into the world to take upon himself the penalty for the sin of mankind and the penalty of every human being's sin, to bear that penalty upon his shoulders as the scriptures teach us. And that cruelly crucified upon the cross, buried in Joseph's tomb, and then as promised, resurrected the third day, proving to those who followed him, to those who he had shared the gospel with, and to all of human history moving forward that it was written in text that he is, in fact, 
the one redeemer for mankind, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, in whom there was no sin, and in whom if we place our faith, we are forgiven of our sin. John wants to underscore that. And so when you come to these phrases like, you know, paraphrase, the Christian cannot sin. The Christian does not sin. Remember the grammatical context in which these phrases exist. It means habitually continue in. Some of the verses we brought out last week were underscoring that truth. Romans 1.32, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things, you read Romans chapter 1 and the downward spiral of mankind, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them, a, a habitual lifestyle that is unaffected by the delivering hand of God. Um, Paul wrestled with the habit of sin, though he, he knew very well that he had been forgiven, saved, Damascus Road experience where uh, his life was altered forever. And yet walking in this life, as we all still do, is it not true that we still wrestle with sin? And Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. He wants to habitually walk in the the things that express and Speak of righteousness in his life, the righteousness of Christ. But he says, I don't practice that. Because there was always a struggle, that struggle of human flesh. Wouldn't it be just great if you and I could wake up one morning and every struggle that we've ever had with things that pull us down from knowing, experiencing, and walking in the fullness of Christ were gone? Well, it's beautiful because in one moment they can be. It's at that, you know, uh, nanosecond, if you will, when we, we come to a realization afresh of our need for Christ and we humble ourselves and confess our sin and realize that he is just and faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. I love what one commentator said as it relates to that struggle and then we'll move on he said quote in some ways the question is not do you sin or not we each sin the question is how do you react when you sin do you give in to the pattern of sin and then let it dominate your lifestyle or do you humbly confess your sin and do battle against it in the power that Christ has given us in resurrection. Another commentator puts it this way. He says, what is important is that we never sign a peace treaty with sin, that we never wink at its presence or excuse it by saying, 
Well, everybody has sinful areas, and this is mine. Jesus understands. Oh, yes, he does understand. But approaching the battle and the ongoing battle forever while we're in this body in that way completely goes against Scripture and what Christ has done in our life once we are born of God. So I felt and believe it's important to underscore those truths before we moved forward in our uh, study of the passage. So I'll bring us now to verse 13 that says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Now, we uh, touched on this just briefly last week, but again, understanding the platform from which John is speaking, here the world uh, is not the physical globe. It's not the, the land and the sea and the universe, uh, this, <laughs> this physical world that we live on. It is rather a world system of thinking. And John, writing to other believers in his day and age, and by reason of the fact that the, the Bible in its entirety is inerrant, it is authoritative, and it is eternal, John is writing to you and to me this morning. And he's saying, don't marvel as a Christian who has submitted their life to the work of Jesus Christ. Don't be amazed if the world's system hates you, does not agree with you, does not go along with with your thinking processes. We were talking with someone earlier this morning how um, culturally, in our culture today, uh, there is an aggressive, particularly here in the West, there is an aggressive attack against biblical Christianity. Uh, there's a large portion of our culture that would just as soon have those noisy Christians go away. And yet that's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. What we were, ta- what we were comparing it to is, you know, back in the... Uh, early establishing of the church, there were, there were the, the Roman great theaters where they threw Christians to the lions. That's what they wanted to do with Christians back then is just feed them to the lions, kill them, get rid of them. Well, we're not there yet, but culturally they're still trying to feed us to the lions. And I know where I get tripped up is when I think, man, don't, think about it. When you start thinking logically, don't they, and again, that's a broad spectrum, don't they understand uh, the, the moral cesspools that this or that or the other lead to? Don't they see the illogical track and path that that kind of thinking leads to? And the answer is no. They will not see 
they will not agree and they will not like you and say that, oh, it's, you know, it's okay, everybody can believe what they want to believe until you mention Jesus Christ and him being the way, the truth, and the life and no way to the Father except by him. Said, oh, you're not tolerant then. Away with you and away you go. So don't expect it, right? Just don't expect it. John says, marvel not. If. Now that if is important. You can circle it. It says, if the world hates you. Why is it important? It's because at times we find unbelieving men, women, young people. We find unbelieving individuals that God begins to soften their heart toward his love expressed at Calvary. And God begins to soften their heart toward his love which is expressed to them through you and your actions and your kindness and your patience and your grace. And it is at times like that that those who were once in the world find that they don't hate you but they rather long for what you have and who it is you know. Probably one of the most welcome questions in our lives as Christians would go something like this from an unbeliever or a skeptic or someone on the fence or an atheist or something. I notice that you have such peace. There's something that goes on in your life that I don't understand, but I'd like to know more about. Can you tell me about that? Open door to sharing our Savior. Then in uh, verses 14 and 15, John makes some profound statements. Here in verse 14 we read, and 15, he says, Now we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Powerful two verses that speak of of something that has uh, to be expressed in a transformed life. John saying very simply that we'll know that Something has happened. We'll know that we have passed from death to life when there is, the word love there is agapao. It is a form of agape, and it is a divine, supernatural, not natural love for the brethren. And John's stating that when that Christian finds that 
love in their heart for the others in Christ, those in the body of Christ, those who are like-minded in the faith, that God places that love in the heart and that should be a sign, a witness, a great joy to you and I this morning that when we recognize that love is there, that we have a love for the brethren. I don't know about you, but man, it's just really sweet to be with other Christians. You can go out and hang in the world and then come and spend some time with the believing families and loved ones, and it's like night and day. doesn't mean that hanging in the world is just, you know, horrible and dark and evil and everything, but, but there's this thing here that doesn't exist in the body of Christ. And if in your heart of hearts you find that there is a greater love in having that time with the brethren, with the body of Christ, John is just simply saying, we know, we know then that we passed from death into life. He talks about the one who uh, abides in death, who does not have love for his brother, you know, this same writer goes on to say, how can you say you love God and hate your brother? They are mutually exclusive and they can't exist together in the same individual. So he states there in verse 15 that the one who hates his brother uh, is technically, spiritually equal to a physical murderer. The one who hates his brother and sister in Christ. Hate. Not dislike, but raka. Hates them. Can find no love, agape love in their heart for them. And knows that they are a brother or a sister in Christ. And just willingly, you know, stays in that place of hate for them. John says, no, that individual is comparable to, likened unto much, a physical murderer. Jesus talking about if we have hate, you know, uh, you've heard it said, you know, do not murder, but I say if you have hatred in your heart to your brother. Now there's a phrase in the end of verse 15 that has often stopped me and caused me to take great pause. And it is there that John says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And I'll simply say to all of you this morning that that has had real life application in my is it saying that someone who has murdered cannot have eternal life? If you don't get that question from that verse, then just keep digging a little bit because it's there. That question is there in that phrase. And we know, John says, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if you've known someone who's committed murder and you hope that they will one day be in heaven, wouldn't that give you great concern? 
if you desired greatly that that individual would join you in the throne room of God at the end of life? Maybe it doesn't apply to anybody else in this room or you who are watching at home, but it has significant application in my life, and it has stopped me many times throughout my years walking with the Lord and trying to, you know, gosh, it's a big book. How do you understand this thing? A little at a time. You just take a little at a time, and God gives you what he needs you to have in the moment for that time. And I'm going to ask Erica to put something up on the screen, which she already has, because here's a beautiful insight that helps us to know what the Spirit of God is saying through the servant of God, John. And it comes in the word abiding. John says that we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here's where those, those little kind of lexicons and uh, Bible help tools come in handy because the grammatical phrase for the word abiding is what we call a present participle. Now you might say, Art, I don't do English and I certainly don't do Greek and I would say to you, neither do I. I'm not very good at English, horrible at English, and I'm not very good at Greek, but these tools can help greatly because the present participle, and I've, I've reduced it to you. I'm going to read the whole thing here. Notice, the present participle uh, expresses continuous and repeated action since, in the Greek, the time of the action represented by participles is relative to the main verb, the present participle, which is what this is, uh, still relative to the main verb, which is, speaking of eternal life, the present participle is used to signify, signify action that is contemporaneous with the leading verb, whether that action occurs in the past, present, or future. What that says to me, and I, I believe that I'm interpreting this correctly, and you and I can debate it. Maybe it's one of those ivory tower type, we'll theologically arm wrestle this until we get to heaven and then we'll really know. But what this says to me is that if an individual who has committed murder At a given time, either in the past or the present, and the Greek even takes us future, that at the moment of that horrific act, a willful taking of another life, choosing to do so in the consciousness of their mind, and let's throw all the, you know, psych stuff off to the side here consciously making the decision to take another life, that at that moment, that person does not have eternal life abiding in them. But you move that same individual past that moment, 
You move that same individual to a place where he, she are remorseful and sorry and repentant about the thing that they did at that moment to the degree that they ask Almighty God to forgive them through the person and work of Jesus Christ that that person can have eternal life abiding in them. That's my exegesis of it, if you will. And I think if you were to flesh that out anymore, you would find it to be true and so. But John takes us a little bit further now down this uh, walk of a contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. And he begins in verse 16 to show us um, what I've called five outworkings of, of love, of agape love. Five outworkings of agape love. The first one here in verse 16 has to do with that the Christian, the one who is born of God, knows what love is. Notice what he says. By this, verse 16, we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John is saying that not only by looking at Christ, but by embracing what Christ has done for our soul, for our eternal security, what Christ did at the cross of Calvary, that we can know that the love of God and because he modeled what it means to be selfless or others-centered by Jesus modeling what it means to give of ourselves for the purposes of the Father God, that we too ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The Christian can know what love is. Secondly, the Christian will not close up their heart when they see need. Verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? He, he's immediately going back to the previous verse. This is how we know what love is. We can know that love. But if Moving forward, if I see someone in need and I have this world's goods and I close my heart, how can that love that I'm to know in the previous verse be uh, abiding in me if that's my, my behavior, that's my posture? But let's take a moment and talk about seeing his brother in need. That's a big subject, isn't it? Because you see, there, there has to be a, a, a kind of a criteria grid, right? What, 
what does it mean if someone is truly in need? How, how do I look at society around me and determine what's a truly a need and what is um, just a consequence of choice? There was a great clip on uh, Channel 3 News yesterday that a young man had um, lost his vehicle, got, uh, got an accident, and a uh, Sacramento young man. And so he got on his bike and he rode to work for six months on his bike. He had a family, taking care of his family. And there was a program available somewhere in this community that actually raised funds and bought him a replacement car. They saw his need and they, they helped fulfill it. And you have to, you know, hats off to someone who would just step up to whatever they need to do in order to remain responsible in a society in which we are called to be responsible citizens of the United States of America. So I, I you know, how, what am I trying to say? I think we have to be careful what we determine is a need in someone's life and what is a consequence of their choices in life. And Jesus said, if you know, he asks you for your coat, give him your cloak also. Well, that has to be integrated into this. I, I can't shut my heart, close my heart. Moving quickly and on, the third outworking of love comes to us in verse 18 where we read, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, it shouldn't just be lip service, but there should be a reaching into of our resources uh, in deed to help someone in need and an expression of the agape love in our heart. Uh, and that it should be done truthfully not placating someone or superficially uh, trying to create a facade of who we are as a person, but it should be done in truth. The fourth outworking of love, verses 19 through 21, we find that... Uh, the Christian will know that God is greater than their heart. Notice verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. John is saying to the children of God, as he's still contrasting the children of God with the children of the devil, that the children of God, when they sense condemnation in their heart, different than conviction, condemnation in their heart, that God is greater than their hearts. And if you uh, and I were to take the time to go through Scripture and look at the difference between uh, conviction and condemnation, uh, simply put, the devil will always seek to condemn you and me. 
He will seek to bring back into your memory all your failures. He will seek to bring to the forefront uh, of your thought processes how unworthy you are, how uh, you don't deserve the love that God has poured out. Because remember this sin and that sin and this breach of things that you did, even as a Christian. You say you're a Christian, well, what about that? You ever, you ever heard that, you know, little whisper voice? Well, that's condemnation, and there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's in Romans. So if our heart does condemn us, and it can at times, God is greater than our hearts. But if our hearts don't condemn us, hey, that's a beautiful place. We walk in confidence toward God. Lastly this morning, uh, the fifth outworking of love is found in verses 22 and 23 that the children of God always seek to do what is pleasing in God's sight. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. And we do, here's where you can underline or highlight, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandments. The one born of God, the children of God, desire to do things that are pleasing in his sight. Does that go without saying? It shouldn't. Is it something probably all of us this morning know and understand? Hopefully so. But isn't it important and necessary that we remind ourselves that our lives, when we step out those doors and we head out into our worlds and our work weeks and our dwelling places and our neighbors and our co-workers and colleagues and student friends and everything, that if we are a professing Christian, if we have named the name of Jesus Christ, that our lives are to be lived in such a way that we are seeking. We do always seek to do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We'll miss the mark. I'll miss the mark. But I won't habitually stay in that place of not wanting to please him. And neither will you. And what a beautiful way that John would end this contrast between, you know, he says basically there's two camps. There's two um, umbrellas of humankind, the children of God and the children of the devil. Those who have been born of God and those who have not. Those who have come to faith in Christ and those who have not those who are born again, and those who are not, too. What a great way to end this contrast 
and reminding us that we know what love is. Our hearts are not to be closed to need. Our love should be seen in deeds and in truth, not just word. When we're condemned in our hearts, God is greater because our desire is to do the things that please him. We'll stop our study there. We'll pick it up in verse 24 next week as we get into the things of the Spirit. Verse 24 really begins with chapter 4. But uh, let's close with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for your kindness to us, for your goodness to us expressed through Christ. We thank you for your servant John, his faithfulness to declare the difference between the children of God and the children of of the devil, those who are born again and those who are not, Lord. And we ask this morning if there's anyone perhaps watching at home or in able to hear my voice that if they question whether or not they are actually a child of God, they would take this opportunity to again ask him to forgive their sin and invite him into their life. And Lord, for those of us who do know you this morning, we're so grateful. So grateful for your patience with us. For your love for us. Thank you, and we ask it in Jesus' name.